Well, this morning, uh, we are going to start uh, a study on the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And, uh, and so uh, this morning um, is, uh, is going to serve as, uh, as an overview of what we're going to see in this book. We're, we're, we're going to barely get into it this morning at the very end. Uh, this morning we're going to talk about, uh, first of all, why study this book. We're going to look at the three major uh, human characters in the story and how they contrast with uh, the character of God in this story. Uh, we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant because um, it appears in Samuel quite a, a bit. Or, uh, and so we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant and how uh, God talks about or reveals his holiness to, uh, to us through this. Um, we're going to talk about how all this points to Jesus. We're going to take a particular communion together. So um, there, there's a lot that we're going to work through together this morning. Um, I'm going to go kind of fast. Um, and so for some of the, the, the elements, instead of pointing you or taking you to Scripture, I'm just going to retell uh, Scripture. Um, and so uh, bear with me. We will get into God's Word, uh, but almost not until the very end. Right? One of the accusations that people level against the Old Testament is that uh, it seems to some that the Old Testament God is a little bit too particular. That the way that God reveals himself in the Old Testament is he's just a little bit too particular about some, some things. That he cares a little bit too much about certain things that maybe we don't care about. And so he's, he's sort of labeled as a little bit too particular. And so to put the question to you, have you ever been labeled that way? Has anybody ever accused you of being too particular? Um, you ever let somebody borrow something and, uh, and when they return it, it was dirty or it was stained or worse, it was broken, right? Uh, maybe it was a car. Um, have, you ever, um, have you ever had a really important event and you were asking people that you cared about to be a part of this event with you, but one of your friends or your family members is chronically late to stuff. And for the most part, you accept that about them, you love them for, uh, for that, but on this one event, you need them to be there on time. And sure enough, the event starts and they're not there. Maybe it was your wedding. Um, in regards to weddings, when Melissa and I got married, she asked two of her college uh, friends to stand up with her along with her sisters. And uh, when the day of the wedding uh, came, there was lots of prep work that needed to be done and decorating and stuff. And, and Melissa was relying on, on her bridesmaids to help her with this. But these two friends, they, they, they didn't help at all. They complained about everything. When it got time for the reception, they sort of supplanted her sisters in seats at the head table. And they sort of made the day about them. Have you ever... Uh, well, do you, do, you, do you care about your name? You know, uh, has anybody, you know, ever taken your name and, and mispronounced it? Maybe it's a hard name to pronounce, and maybe it's not. Or maybe they've abbreviated your name for you, right? Or maybe they've given you a nickname. Uh, have you ever asked anybody to help you move? And, uh, and, and they just break stuff. Uh, when Melissa and I were moving out of our first apartment, we had a brand new couch, it was the one piece of, of new furniture that we owned. And I asked a friend who, after we got it in the movie truck, I asked, asked a friend to cover it and protect it with this moving blanket. And sure enough, when we get there to unload it, there's this gigantic hole in the back of the couch where it rubbed against the wall of the moving truck on the way. Do you supervise people? Right? Is, it, is there people that, that you have authority over and you've explained how to do their job? 
and you've shown them how to do it, and, and, and they need to recognize that the reflection that, that you know, the, the way they do this job reflects on you to your superiors, and sure enough, either you end up like having to fix all that they do, or it's just not right. Um, when, early on when we, were, uh, when we were married, we were a little bit short on funds, and uh, this guy in the church hired me to, to help him paint a house. And uh, he was a professional, and we went into this house, and he said, I just want you to roll paint on the walls and leave the ceiling and the, and the, 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 the floor, and the, all the edging, just leave that for me. And he goes away and, and does another job, and I'm rolling the walls, and I'm like, I think I got this. And so I start edging, and when he comes back, he finds paint on the ceiling, paint on the door, paint on, on trim, just everywhere. I have, have become very particular about painting because of that job. I've been accused of being too particular about some things. You should ask Ryan or ask Jay. On the other hand, I've accused other people of being too particular about things. You see, we, 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 we discover in our relationships that we care about certain things that other people don't care about and vice versa, and that creates conflict, right? Um, sometimes we care about the same things that other care, people care about, but in different ways. So if I were like to poll all the parents in this room of school-aged children and ask if you care about your kid's education, I'm willing to bet that across the board the answer would be yes. But how you go about that will look differently. And for some of you, you put your kids in public school because you want your kids to be salt and light in the world in which they are, they are in. And some of you kids or put your kids in, in a Christian school because you want them to have a good biblical foundation. And some of you homeschool your kids because they, you want them to be well-rounded in some things that you're not going to find in the school systems. Every single one of you is looking out for your kids and wants your kids to have the, the best education, but you're going to go about it differently. And so one of, if one of you were to stand up and say, you're going to do it my way, the rest of you would push back on that, right? So here we have a God who says, be holy as I'm holy. Here we have, you know, you look at places like Leviticus 10, and God, uh, he's instructed all of this, this the way of, of worshiping him. And, and, and there's this, this instance where this guy goes in to offer incense before God. But he's offering the wrong kind of incense. It, it, it's called strange fire. We don't really know what that means. But he's offering the wrong thing and God consumes him with fire. He's dead on the spot. And we would look at that and say, God, aren't you a little bit too particular about incense? Is it really worth a man's life? Are you too particular? And, then, and, and if we were to put the question to you, is it, is it wrong for you to be particular? You would say, no. It's not wrong for me to be particular. In fact, the reason why we're particular is because we're made in the image of a particular God. You're particular because he's particular. You care about stuff because he cares about stuff. That's part of, of the image. And, and, and if we're going to be honest, the, one of the ways that we feel most loved and most embraced and most respected is when people, uh, they accept us for our particularities, right? So when you walk into somebody's house and you take your shoes off because you know they care about a clean floor, or you return a person's car with a full tank of gas, or you show up to an event like the event is for you, and you help serve another person so that they are able to enjoy themselves. Or you do a job for somebody else like it's going to reflect on you. That's a way that you love that person. You show respect to that person. That you accept their peculiarities and the, and the things that they care about. We feel loved and accepted when people do that for us. You look at the, the marriage relationship. For, for, for a human being to stand in front of another human being and be totally accepted and embraced for who they are. Even naked. Now, the culture will get will over-sexualize this, but our first parents had this. 
Our first parents in the garden knew what it was like to be naked without shame, to stand before God, before one another, and before all of creation and not have to cover up, not have to hide, not have to, have to protect themselves. Our first parents knew what it was like to be completely exposed for who and what they were before all of creation without fear of being rejection, without fear of being harmed, and without fear of shame. To be accepted for who you are. The problem is, God was particular about a tree. And he was particular about a tr- fruit from that tree. And he was particular about uh, Adam and Eve, our first parents, abstaining from that. And along came a liar and convinced them uh, to, to believe a lie that said they should reach out and they should take what, shouldn't, what they shouldn't have. They believed the lie and the result is that sin and death entered into our reality along with shame and the need to cover up and the need to hide. You see, God is a particular God and we're made in his image and so we're particular too. But when we fell dead in the garden, that image was marred and it was broken. And so we're no longer particular in the way that God is particular. And it's not that God changed, we changed. And so we have to look at this and ask, who are we to point to God and his holiness and say that he shouldn't be particular about the order that he's made or how he reveals himself to us? Or uh, we, who are we to call God by a different name than the one he wants us to call him or treat his creation in a way he didn't design for it to be treated or to break his stuff or to break his rules? Who are we to put him on our timeline? Our problem is not that God is too particular. Our problem is that we're not particular enough about the things that he's particular about. The problem isn't God. The problem is, is us. So we're going to come back to that. Let's talk about 2 Samuel. Again, this is meant to be an overview of the text. We'll really get into it next week. Uh, why study the book of 2 Samuel? Hopefully we've just answered that question to some degree. We want to know a holy God. He's a whole different kind of different than us. And it's an act of love to want to know who he is, right? To, to, to know him in his, his holiness and to know him for who he is and not try to change him. But the other reason for this is, is to pick up where we left off on Easter Sunday. We finished up the gospel according to Luke. We were looking at Luke 24 and Jesus is, is risen. He's come back from uh, the, the, the grave and he's visiting various followers and they don't recognize him and they're all confused in Luke 24. All these people are confused and they don't understand what's going on. They don't know why uh, Jesus suffered and they don't know why he died and they don't know what's going on. So Jesus shows up and what does he do? He opens up the Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament to them, it was the law and the prophets. He opens up scripture to them and he begins to work through scripture with them and show them, here's me. Here's why I had to suffer. Here's why I had to die. And here's why I had to rise. Throughout the Old Testament, here's a picture of me. Glimpse after glimpse, all of this is pointing to me. The Old Testament is about Jesus. And if you're going to love Jesus and follow Jesus, then to know him fully, you need to embrace the Old Testament. So that's why we're going through it. Uh, when it comes to Samuel, when you, when you think about the, the Old Testament that, that uh, the, the first century church had, the, the Hebrew scroll, scrolls, um, in there, Samuel wasn't first and second Samuel. There wasn't two books of Samuel. There was just one book called Samuel. Okay? So just one book. We studied the book of first Samuel before we dove into Luke. Um, it's been a little bit, and so some of you maybe weren't here for that. Um, but that's our pattern. 
on Sunday mornings, we, we study an Old Testament book, then a New Testament book, then back to the Old Testament. Uh, so we're coming back to, uh, to, to, to 2 Samuel. But for those of you who weren't a part of that, I just want to give you a, a brief reminder of where we were. Um, Samuel, 1 Samuel starts off with a woman who can't conceive. She can't have children. And she prays to God, and God intervenes, and she is able to, to bear a child. She names him Samuel. And she, uh, she takes him when he's old enough, and she hands him over to God. He, he goes to... Uh, to a place called Shiloh where the, where the tabernacle is and uh, where a priest named Eli is and he there is, he's, he's there to serve God under uh, the tutelage and the discipleship of a guy named Eli. And it's there that as a child, he hears from God. And, and, and Samuel says, uh, it, this was rare in those days for people to hear from God and yet here's this boy is and he's hearing from God, God's speaking to him. Uh, well, uh, Samuel grows up and he becomes what's called the last judge over Israel. Judges were, um, were, were people who were prophet, priest-like kind of people who, uh, who, who led and, and, uh, and, and made judgments concerning uh, you know, various issues for God on behalf of God. Um, but he's the last judge because in his later years, the Israelite leaders, they come to him and they say, we want a king to rule over us. Israel was supposed to be a theocracy. They were meant to, to see God as their king. Instead, these Israelite leaders come to him and say, we want a man to rule over us instead of God. Because all the nations around us have, 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 have kingdoms like this, and that's what we want too. And God says to Samuel, well, it's not, it's not you they're rejecting as your leader, it's, it's me they're rejecting. But I'm gonna give them what they want. And so he raises up a guy named Saul. And Saul uh, takes over sort of the focus of the storyline of 1 Samuel. And at first, he's a pretty good guy, but then pride takes over, and something called fear of man takes over, and he starts to make some really poor, wicked decisions until God says, you're done. I'm gonna remove you from power. I'm gonna replace you with somebody else. And he sends Samuel uh, to a place called Bethlehem to a, to a family where there was eight sons, and the youngest of which was just this little shepherd boy named David. And God says, that's the next king. That's the king that I want. He's, he, he's, a, he's, he's a person who has a heart like I have. In other words, he's particular about some of the same stuff I'm particular about. The, the thing is, is though David doesn't become king right away. The rest of 1 Samuel is all about um, uh, uh, Saul's jealousy of David. He tries to kill David. Um, David goes on the run. There's this big manhunt. And, 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 and David, uh, he, he decides he's not going to fight back. Uh, David understands that what God is doing in his life is molding him for the future, preparing him to be king, but also he understands one important biblical principle, and that is God's the one who sets up rulers, and God's the one who takes them down. It's not up to us. David has opportunity multiple times to, to kill Saul, and he doesn't do that, and he says, far be it from me to reach out my hand against God's anointed. I'm not going to do it. And so God does it. God handles uh, all of this for David. And so the book of 1 Samuel ends with King Saul lying dead on a battlefield, uh, killed at the hand of the Philistines, and then David hearing the news. And, and 2 Samuel picks up right there. And what we see is David mourning the death of Saul. Sort of this, this, this unexplained, sort of different sort of attitude. We're gonna talk about this next week. Um, but he's mourning the death of Saul. And you'd think he'd be happy about that because now the obstacle for him to him becoming king has been removed. Instead, he's mourning the death of Saul. 
Um, well, uh, the, sort of the, the, the overarching uh, sort of uh, theme of, of the rest of, of Second Samuel, you kind of see it um, uh, illustrated behind me. Uh, David becomes king, first over one tribe, uh, then after a few years of civil war, uh, he's made uh, king over all of Israel, and this is Israel's golden age. This is the best Israel's history ever gets. Uh, this is when they were the most prosperous. This is when they were the most united. Uh, from, from this point on, uh, Israel and, and Jewish people, they will always look back to this moment in history as the best it ever was, this, this short uh, time. And it, and it didn't last very long. It didn't last very long. And, and we see David committing a, a horrible sins, um, failing just atrociously. We're going to walk through that with him. We're going to see him fail, and as a result of his failure, the consequences just keep rippling, keep rippling from generation to generation to generation. It actually will lead to the destruction of Israel and then being carried off into Babylon. He's going to see firsthand the destruction that it ha has on his own kids. He'll see his, his sons fight and kill one another. He'll experience this. And then we'll get to the end of 2 Samuel where David will sin yet again. God is, and it will pour out a judgment against this. And there's this plague that happens and it stops at this specific geographic place. And that turns out to be a place where his son Solomon will put the first temple to God. All right? But see, that's sort of the overarching thing of where we're going to go. But we see through these three leaders, Samuel, Saul, and David. They're particular but they're particularly wrong, right? They're particular about some, some things. And, and one of the, the significant contrasts between them and God is how justice is met out, how they meet out justice. And what you see in the life of these three human characters is that they go too far. As leaders of a people, someone crosses a line and meeting out justice towards that person, they take it too far, too violent, too vengeful, too bloody or they don't take it far enough and they're too apathetic. We, we see this in, in, in Saul. Uh, God tells Saul to destroy all of this people group called the Amalekites. He was particular about that. Well, Saul didn't. He captures some of them, but he leaves them alive. And Samuel finds out and Samuel comes onto the scene and Samuel takes a sword and he slices and he dices them all. He's a prophet and a priest. It's not his role to be executioner. And so Saul, too apathetic, doesn't go far enough. Samuel goes way too far. You see this in the life of David. I mean, he's gonna have people killed who just bring him bad news. And yet, in some instances, where one of his sons does something atrocious to one of his daughters, it just simply says he got angry, but he did nothing. Did nothing. They don't know how to meet out justice the right way. They're particularly, but they're particularly wrong. And see, God contrasts their story through the story of something he has human hands make. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And he uses this material object to show them the difference between them and him. The Ark of the Covenant, I'll, I'll, I'll be as brief as I can. The Ark of the Covenant, its story begins in the book of Exodus. 
and uh, uh, God has saved his, his people out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them out to the wilderness at the base of this mountain. Moses goes up on top of this mountain, and he receives this law from God. God's very particular about the way he wants his people to live, and so he gives Moses this law, but he's gone for a very long time, and people at the bottom of the mountain are saying, um, something's bad has happened. Surely he's dead. What are we going to do? We need something to worship. We need something to point to and say, that's my God. I need something that I can point to and say, that's what I follow. That's what I serve. And so Aaron, Moses' brother, says, bring gold to me. They do. And he makes this monument, this bovine engraven image that looks like a calf. It's what they were familiar with in terms of worship in Egypt and what it looked like. And, and Aaron points to this thing. He says, there's your God. That's the, your, your savior. That's what saved you from Egypt. That's what you're to follow. That's what you're to serve. And so they begin bowing down and worshiping it. God says to Moses up on the mountain, I'm ready to kill them. I'm ready to wipe them out. I'm ready to, to, to make an end to their unfaithfulness after all I've done for them. They go down the mountain. Moses takes the two stone tablets that he has in his hand and he, he throws them on the ground in his anger. He takes the calf and he grinds it up and he makes the people drink it. Then God pours out like this, this uh, uh, plague on them and people start dying until Moses intercedes. And Moses stands between God and the people and he says, God, we need you to be with us. We need you to be a part of our lives. We need you to be present. We need you to guide us to where we're going. We need you. When it comes to what these people were seeking in this calf, is they were seeking to have God in their presence. They needed God. And so God says, well, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a particular way of worshiping me, a particular way of connecting with me, a particular way of feeling and knowing my presence. And so the, the tabernacle, is, is given instructions for, particular instructions about this portable tent that they were to take with them through their, their journeys. And then the inside, there is this, this special, most holy part of the tent. And in this most holy, holy part of the tent, God gave particular instructions about a box, a wooden box, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches deep, covered in gold. It's to have gold rings along the bottom of it. You take wooden, long wooden poles, cover them in gold too, and, and use those poles. Only use those poles to carry this thing. Then you make a lid, a wooden lid, cover it with gold. Put some angels on top of it with wings outstretched towards one another. And this is called the mercy seat. And when you put this special box in this special place, you're going to see the glory of God come down and dwell this. I'm going to be your God in the midst of my people, is what he says. God and his presence fell in the middle of the camp, but there's still barriers between them. There's still curtains. There's still dividing walls. The only one that can, can go into the presence of this holy place is, is a priest, and he has to bathe, and he has to wear speci special clothes, and he has to make special sacrifices, and only one time a year. God is particular about all of these details, very, very, very particular about every single one, and only one time a year can he go in. Now, when they saw the glory of God depart the tabernacle there to pack it up, and the Levites, one tribe, a special sect within them, there to be the, the baggage carriers and the baggage handlers, and they're the ones that are to carry the ark in front of the people. So Exodus ends, Joshua begins, they go into the promised land, the ark leads the way. Rivers are, are dried up to make room for them. The, the, the ark leads them into battle, and when God is with them, they win. 
until all the land is settled, and then they, they set up the tabernacle in a place called Shiloh, and that's where we see it in Samuel. That's where Hannah goes and prays. That's where Samuel goes and serves as a child. That's where he hears from God. But then something happens. The Israelites are defeated in combat against the Philistines. And they decide, let's take the ark into battle next time. And they treat it like a lucky charm. They forget that this material box is very particular to God, and it's supposed to point the people to him. But they treat it like a lucky charm, and it goes before them into battle, and they lose. Thousands of them die, and the priests carrying the ark are killed, and the ark is, is captured. Now, when, when they hear news of, of the defeat, Eli, the guy who discipled Samuel, he falls over and dies. Uh, the wife of one of the priests who died, she, w- she went into labor. Uh, she gave birth to, to a child, and as she's dying, she names it, him Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed Israel. In other words, there, there's great lamentation over this. This is great mourning. Like, in their view, God has left them. God has been captured, God is gone. God is no longer in their presence. Well, the Philistines, uh, they take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in their own temple to the the God they worship called Dagon. And in their view, if you conquer a people, then you conquer their God and you add their God to your pantheon of gods, but under your main God, because your God is better, because you won. So the Ark of of the Covenant is inside the temple of Dagon. They find it the next day and Dagon is laying prostrate on the ground. Looks like he's worshiping the ark. They set him back up, and the next day they come in, and Dagon's head is cut off, and his hands are cut off. And God is making a really loud proclamation. God is preaching through this. There's only one God. There's only one all-powerful authority, and your God ain't it. Well, uh, God then sends a plague, cancerous, Uh, tumors uh, on people. He sends a rodent infestation until the Philistines are like, we gotta get rid of this thing. Eventually, they strap it to the back of a cart. They put a couple milk cows in front of it and the milk cows head off towards Israel. They arrive in a place called Beth Shemesh and the Israelites are like, yes, the ark is back. God is back. God is back. But again, they don't know how to handle it and 70 of them look inside of it and they're dead. Well, we don't know how to handle it, so they called for the men of Kiriath-Jerim to come, and they come, and they take, a house, uh, to take it back to a guy named Abinadab's house, and it stays there for 20 years. 20 years until David goes out to get it. In 2 Samuel 6, David is gonna go out, and he takes 30,000 people with him to go get the ark. Now, we're almost done with the sermon. Let's get into the text. Normally, it's not like this, but Okay. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. The words will be up on the screen behind me. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio... Ahio, I think it's Ahio. Um, the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. 
And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon Uzzah, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So David wants to go out and bring the presence of God back in. Jerusalem's the new capital. He's got a tent set up. He wants to go and get the ark and bring it back and, and symbolize to all of Israel that God is in their midst. And so he goes out. 30,000 people he takes to go get the ark from Abinadab's house. Well, they put it on a new cart and they begin to travel. There's a problem with this. That's how the Philistines carried the ark. Remember how the ark's supposed to be carried? The long poles carried by priests. God was particular about that. So it's being carried in a way it shouldn't be carried. And as a result, an ox stumbles and it looks like the Ark of the Covenant is going to fall off the cart. And there's Uzzah, and he reaches out his hand to stop the fall of the Ark of the Covenant. And God strikes him dead. Now, don't you look at that and say, God, that's a little too particular. Like, they're trying to bring your Ark home. Right? They're trying to do a good thing. They're trying to bring you into the center and to have you in their presence with them. And they're transporting it in what seems like a logical way to transport something. And something bad happens. And somebody's trying to prevent it from hitting the ground and protect it in that way. God, you're being too particular about this box. Is it really worth a man's life? And see, here's the problem with that understanding or that view. First is we don't understand that the people of God are handling God like the culture around them is handling God. The people of God are handling the Ark of the Covenant like the Philistines handled it, and they were wrong. And how many of us as Christians, the way that we approach God and the things that, that we care about, they look a lot more like the world around us than like what God says the people of God should care about. The second problem with that is that Uzzah didn't understand what was clean and what was dirty. Uzzah thought the ground was dirty. Uzzah thought the, the ground was unclean. The, the, the mud was what was, what was unholy in, in, in that scene. That's wrong. See, what was unholy and what was unrighteous and what was unclean was Uzzah. It was Uzzah. It was the man who was the issue. It was his hands that were not holy. You see, humanity's problem isn't that God is too particular about sin. It's that we're not particular enough about sin. We're not particular enough, uh, enough about our own sin. And we look at our hands and we think that they're clean when they're not. We're not particular enough about our own sin. 
See, it's, it's not God that cares too much. It's we who don't care enough. People think that the God of the Old Testament looks differently than the God of the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament is very particular, but the God of the New Testament isn't so much. And I would say, reread the New Testament. What we see throughout the New Testament is this command, not, to, not in regards to a golden box or to a tent or to a temple, but in regards to Jesus. How we handle the Son of God. How we relate to him. Do we really take seriously that part of the Great Commission where Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I commanded? Everything. Do we take the parts of the New Testament seriously that say that we need to be about mortifying our flesh, mortifying our sin, dealing with the ways that we have rebelled against God? The fact that the things that, that God is particular about, we have rejected and embraced other things. The New Testament is just particular. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament, and he hasn't changed. He's still particular about sin. But here's the difference. He's given us a way to deal with it. We're going to partake of communion as part of the message this morning. If you're sitting on the inner aisle, there's a tray in front of you. You can take that out, grab an element, pass it down. If you're here this morning and, and you would say that this Jesus that we're talking about um, might have been a really good teacher, but he's not the one that you serve. He's not the one you call Lord. He's not God to you. Um, glad that you're here. Feel free to just simply pass that on by. I don't want you to make a statement of faith that you don't in fact have. So uh, let that go by. There's, nobody's watching you. There's lots of reasons for not partaking in, in, in communion. But in your hands, you hold very simple symbols of the gospel, of what Jesus accomplished for us. We have this symbol of bread. You know, Uzzah died in order to proclaim one truth. God is holy. God sacrificed Uzzah to proclaim the message, God is holy. And when it comes to our sin, God's not going to simply sweep it under the rug and pretend like it, it, it doesn't matter. Someone has to pay. And so the Son of God comes and he takes on flesh and he lives a particular life. Holy, perfect life. Without sin, without shame, and every moment of every day of his life was lived for the glory of God the Father. He lived a particular life, and he takes that particular life, and he puts it in your hand and says, this is my body, and I'm giving it to you because I'm going to take your place. I'm going to make the great exchange for you. I'm going to go to the cross, and, and he who knew no sin becomes sin so that you might know the righteousness of God. I'm going to make that exchange with you. I'm going to take your sin, and I'm going to give you my righteousness. If he's done that for you, take that element and eat. The cup, it points to his blood. He says, this cup is a symbol of the new relationship you get to have with God because of the sacrifice I make for you. 
because I take your place. Because I was particular about the things God is particular about and you couldn't be. I've lived the life you couldn't live. I'm giving you that life and now you get to have the relationship I have with God. And if you know the Father because of his son Jesus, then drink all of it. Now here's the reality. Because of Jesus, you've been robed in his righteousness. Because of the cross, the punishment of sin has been dealt with. Because of his ascension and resurrection, you now have the power over sin because he sent his spirit to live in you. You are now walking tabernacles of the most holy God. Now, we don't use that as an excuse to not deal with the presence of sin. Because the presence of sin is all around us and it's still in us. God has given us this, this gracious gift of his son, but not so that we would be apathetic towards sin, so that we would pursue it with all malice to destroy it and rid it from our hearts. Let's get back to the story. Verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. See, the first response that David has upon Uzzah's death is to get angry and to say, God, don't you think you're being too particular about this? Why should it cost a man his life? He's angry at God for this. His anger, though, is, is turned into fear. Now, there's two kinds of fear that we see in the story. The first is the Philistinian kind of fear. When they encounter God, they want God to get as far away from them as possible. It's a terror that pushes God away. And here what we see in David is a type of fear that asks the question, what do I need to do in order to handle this thing the right way? What do I need to do in order to embrace him? What do I need to do to, to be particular about the things that he is particular about? It's a holy fear, a wise fear that inclines his heart towards God. And when he sees what God is doing, he's blessing Obed-Edom and he realizes it's possible. He goes out and he gets the ark and he brings it back and he's bringing it out with singing and rejoicing and he's dancing. And there's this beautiful picture of joy and celebration. And his wife sees him. And she's ashamed of him. <coughs> Excuse me. And she calls him to be ashamed of his own actions. And he's not. He's not. See, here's the beautiful thing about this story. It's seen in what he's wearing, this linen ephod. It's actually a priestly doc, uh, uh, garment. It's a priestly garment, and you actually see it in, in Exodus where God instituted it for the high priests to wear. But David's wearing it. 
The other thing about it is it's not the outer garment, it's the inner garment. It's holy underwear, essentially. And, and basically, it was a linen shirt that just covered the torso and went probably just above the knee. It was thin in material. It's essentially underwear. And that's all David was wearing. And look at the text. He's singing. He's dancing. He's leaping with all his might. In other words, he's exposing himself. Don't over-sexualize this. He's, he's exposing himself, but he doesn't care. See, there's something happening here. He's glorifying God. He's glorifying God at the cost of his own dignity. And he doesn't care. See, he's particular about what God is particular about. And he's not worried about what other people are thinking of him. Here's the reality. When you and I embrace God's holiness in the ways that God is particular, we find freedom. The eyes of the world may want to shame you. The people around you might condemn you. But to embrace God's holiness, to be particular about the things that God is particular about, it doesn't enslave you. It frees you. We'll close there. Uh, the book of Samuel is a, uh, it's a violent book. There's lots of bloodshed here. But we're also going to see God's holiness on display and how it points us to Jesus, who is our better king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and how you have deliberately shown us who you are. Thank you for being a holy God. You are a different kind of different than us. You are high above. We need a holy God. I pray that by the power of your spirit living in us, we would reflect lives of holiness, that we would pursue holiness, and that we would be willing to make significant costs to our own lives in order to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.